Please pray with me. Father, help us grow in our love for each other as we look into your word today. Help us grow in knowledge and understanding. Help us understand what really matters so we may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. Fill us with the fruit of our salvation and produce righteous character in our lives through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are intrigued, I think as humans, by the idea of time travel. What if we could go forward in time or back in time and do, and you fill in the blank, all right? You can fill in the blank in a lot of ways, right? But what if we could do that thing that you kind of dream of, you imagine? Whether it's the Back to the Future franchise or the seemingly perpetual appeal on British TV of Doctor Who, which has been going for something like 60 years now off and on, or Hermione Granger using a time turner, or even Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite who just wants to go back to 1982 and try to win a football game. We're intrigued with the possibility of going to another time knowing what we know. We could change history. Maybe we could keep tyrants from rising to power or perhaps we could promote or protect the virtuous by our well-timed interventions. Or on a more self-interested note, we could use our knowledge to change our own fate, our own possibilities. What if you could go back and sign on as an initial investor with a little-known guy named Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, right? Going all in on their then somewhat daring enterprises, knowing your investment would pay off and beyond anyone's wildest imaginations. Well, as far as I know and we know, we can't actually time travel. But in today's reading from Philippians, Paul tells us that, in a sense, we have been told what will be. We do know where things are going. And we've been invited in on the ground floor of something far better than getting rich off the innovation of Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. Something far better than trying to manipulate this person or that group into or out of power. Last week, Father Paul reflected for us on the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, in which we're told that the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became a mortal man like you, like me. He became one of us, and he died. And we're not just talking about an ordinary death. He suffered terrible abuse and a humiliating, painful public execution. But Paul reminds the Philippians and us that while Jesus suffered and died on that cross, the story did not end there. He rose from the dead, and he is at the Father's right hand. And one day he will return here in glory, and every knee will bow to him, and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Now we hear that word Lord in the modern world. We kind of know like, oh yeah, that's important. That's somebody prominent. That's an important person. But for the Philippians, of course, this would have meant way more than it means to us. They knew a particular person is Lord, not just a concept, right? Caesar is Lord. Caesar provides us with stability. We're living in the middle of this time of peace and tranquility around the world. Pax Romana, we call it historically. Caesar provides that. He stabilizes our world. And those people in Philippi in particular had benefited from that stabilizing power of Caesar as Lord. And so they took that seriously. This guy is valuable. We respect him. And so it's really impressive when Paul tells them that everyone, not just people in the Roman Empire, but everyone, everywhere, down through time, is going to declare Jesus 
as Lord. That's really impressive. And it's all the more impressive when he tells them, and by the way, this is a guy who died this humiliating, awful death. And yet the story didn't stop there. So by beginning today's reading with, therefore, my beloved, the Apostle Paul is reminding the Philippians and us that this is what we know to be true. And it should change our lives. Jesus is that true Lord. He's the true authority. And since we know he's the one who will triumph, we also know now he's the one we should obey, the one we should follow. Paul says, I love you, Philippians. Therefore, I must remind you of this central truth. That, of course, brings us to this line, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The verb there for working out is a plural imperative, and it suggests a couple things. First of all, it suggests we work out our salvation together. This isn't just me doing my individual thing or you doing your individual thing. We do this together as the body of Christ. It's together we actualize or we work out our salvation. But secondly, of course, the plural also reminds us that even together, our salvation is not accomplished by us or in our strength. For Paul goes on to say, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we have an imperative, obey, work out our salvation. But Paul quickly reminds us that our ability to do that is completely rooted in God, just as the power and initiative for our salvation in the first place came from him. Thus, God is the one who both wills and works in us for his good pleasure. Today's psalm beautifully pictures this. We just read these words together, right? We must and we should faithfully follow the Lord as our shepherd, but the core of what the psalmist is saying is our care and our success is found not in what we do, but in what he does for us. I mean, hear those words again. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He leads. He restores. You are with me. You comfort me. You prepare a table. You anoint my head. In a similar way, in our Isaiah reading, we have this beautiful picture of the Lord of hosts making for all peoples a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. And then Isaiah says, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And then in our gospel reading, we have a similar picture of a wedding feast where those who are invited there are there simply and solely because the Lord of the feast said, go bring some people in, anybody. They're not people who had a pre-existing relationship. They hadn't done anything valuable for him. They weren't special in some broader sense, right? He said, bring people to my feast. They are going to be here solely because of my grace toward them, my work on their behalf. And yet, when they are invited in, they have to dress for the wedding. They have to be dressed and ready for what they are there for. All of these pictures, I think, remind us that the work of salvation is completely God's work. But that in that work that is his, he calls for, and indeed he requires, us to respond. We have to trust in the shepherd who is going to do all that for us. We have to wait for our God, in Isaiah's words. We have to put on our wedding garment. 
Work out your own salvation, Paul says, in fear and trembling. In verses 14 to 18, Paul will develop and illustrate these points by referencing several different passages from the Hebrew scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament. First, in verses 14 and 15, he references the children of Israel after the Exodus. So just as Paul's been reminding the Philippians, your salvation is a gift from God, and he's the one who began that good work, he's the one who will complete it, so in the Exodus account, it was God who delivered his people. If you remember the story, right? The people are there, they're in bondage, the Pharaoh, and they're crying out to God because they cannot free themselves, right? So they cry out to God, and God hears them, and so God goes and he calls Moses. He says, Moses, I'm going to send you to lead my people out, and Moses says, I don't think I'm up for this job, and God essentially says to him, of course not, right? And good news, you're not the one who's going to do it. Like, I'm going to use you to do it, but it's my power that's going to lead my people out. Now go, have I not commanded you? Then, after they get out, Pharaoh tries to recapture them. And God literally opens the sea, and he leads his people through the Red Sea. But then we get to the part Paul's referencing here in Philippians. After all that happens, all that deliverance, all God's work, that amazing power on their behalf, the people go out into the desert, and they start to grumble and complain and dispute. How will we get food? Where will we get water? And the obvious rhetorical question they might ask is, well, maybe the God who delivered us from Pharaoh and who led us through the Red Sea might be able to do something about this. Doesn't seem to be asked. That pattern of failing to trust unfortunately repeats itself multiple times during the Israelites' time in the desert. And so when we get to Moses' farewell address in Deuteronomy 32, he says this, they've dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. In short, Moses, who's been the one charged with caring and leading the foreign caring and leading people of Israel, has warned them, this is how you've acted toward God. You've dealt with him corruptly. You've been so blemished. You've become like not his children. You've been crooked and twisted. Now, if you hear that language, you think, that sounds familiar. I've heard that somewhere recently. Right. You just heard Joel read it in our Philippians passage. Paul is taking Moses' language here in Deuteronomy 32, and he's challenging the Philippians with it. He's saying, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Don't be like those who are saying, you're not looking like children of God. Be children of God without blemish. In other words, in the midst of all the hard things, and the Philippians are dealing with hard things, they're facing persecution, Paul's in jail. But in the middle of all those those hard things, trust instead of grumbling, instead of disputing. None of this means, by the way, that we should avoid talking about hard things or pretend they aren't hard. And Paul doesn't do that in Philippians. You remember, he wrote, he's writing from prison. He's already told them this. In fact, he's told them, you know what, for me, it would actually be better if I just could go home and be with the Lord. Right? It would kind of be be better for me. He knows about hard things. He knows that. But he calls himself and the Philippians and us to keep on trusting Then in the next line, Paul brings in another Old Testament reference to further build this exhortation he's giving them. He says, Be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And here Paul is referencing Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel gives this beautiful picture of what God's children will be. And he says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
So Paul goes from this negative portrayal of the children of Israel in the desert as rebelling against God, failing to trust and obey, to this beautiful, powerful, positive picture in Daniel of God's children being really like God's children, resembling God and being these shining lights like the stars forever and ever. Then in his next line, Paul calls on the Philippians to hold fast to the word of life. This term, word of life, is kind of interesting. It doesn't actually occur all that often in the New Testament, and it's only found here in Paul's writings. At first glance, we might want to assume, oh, that probably refers to the written word of God, the Bible, right, which we have. But if you look at what Paul's saying here, and if you look at how it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, it actually seems to be focused more on the spoken and the embodied word of life in Jesus, both in him directly during his time on earth, but also in us as the people who are the body of Christ. For example, in the Gospels, in John chapter 6, some of Jesus' followers are leaving him. And so Jesus turns to the twelve and he asks them, he says, are you going to leave too? Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Then later on in Acts 5, the early church is facing persecution. And an angel comes and he actually is freeing the disciples from prison after they've been in prison for speaking the name of Jesus. And he tells them, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And so they go and they proclaim the good news of Jesus again. Then finally in 1 John chapter 1, John uses the term word of life to describe the life that Jesus embodied. And listen to John's words. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the, with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So in all three of these, the focus is not so much on a written text, but on that lived word. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate lived word of life. But as those who are now the body of Christ on earth, the church, the ones who are called to, to present Jesus, to be Christ ones to those around us, we are called to embody that word of life as we live out Christ's life. We reflected on this two weeks ago, of course. When you think about back to chapter 1 and verse 27, um, in preaching on that passage, Father Paul talked about that line that Paul has here, live a manner of life worthy of the gospel. And he pointed out that this would have had real social and political meaning for the Philippians, who are again, as we mentioned earlier, probably more than unusually loyal to Rome. This is a pretty loyal city by all accounts, historically. They knew this meant we have to live differently. Jesus is our true Lord. And so that is our word of life that we are called to live out. He is our Lord, not Caesar. Coming back to what Paul's doing with Old Testament references, he's going to loop back to where he started here, to Deuteronomy 32 again, because that term word of life also reminds us again of Moses' discourse. So in Deuteronomy 32, at the end of the chapter, verses 46 and 47, after giving lots of strong words of rebuke to the people of Israel and telling them, this is how you behaved, this is the way you failed to trust, and the way you failed to obey, and the way you've you know, not acted like God's children, Moses reminds the people, my desire in this is not to attack you. I'm not here to like, 
you know, slam you, but to say, I want you to turn back to God, right? And I want you to thrive. And so at the end, he has this beautiful part where he says, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word to you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. This is Paul's hope here for the Philippians, that they would hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In other words, Paul's saying, be God's children, live like it, embody it, let his words be your words, live out that word of life. I think we, we need to be clear here because there's, there's a temptation sometimes we have as Christians that we shouldn't, shouldn't go down this path, right? This doesn't mean we have to be happy, clappy people where you act as if everything is great regardless of what's happening, right? Sometimes things are bad, right? They're just rough. Life has a lot of really hard things. Um, and it's not saying we have to pretend that bad things are good things, right? It does mean being people who are open to joy even when things are hard, even when things are not good. To say, God, how do you want to redeem this? How do you want to enter into this and transform it in ways I can't do, but I believe you can? Last year, when I went on silent retreat, there was this moment where our retreat director was talking to us, and he told us, and this line really struck with me, he said, don't pray for patience. He said, that's too hard. Pray for gratitude. That's a good word. Don't pray for patience. Pray for gratitude. Ask the Lord to help us be people of gratitude instead of grumbling and see how he opens paths to joy even when we can't, when it's beyond us. Paul closes our passage today with a personal illustration of his own grateful obedience and he appeals to the Philippians to follow in that. He says, holding fast to the word of life looks like me, as Paul, being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So in this Old Testament reference, we have another one here, right? He's using this theme of offering, and he's saying, our offerings are being brought together. I'm the drink offering, I'm being poured out on your larger offering, and together, again, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we're reminded here, of course, of Jesus himself humbling himself, as we talked about last week, to suffer death on the cross, and then and only then being exalted and glorified. And so Paul says we should see our sacrifices like that. Give up your life, sacrifice your, your life, what your, your desires, so you can truly have life. And as Paul likes to do, he drives home his point here with repetition. Um, he does that a lot in this epistle, if you haven't noticed, right? Um, he does that very frequently. And so he says here, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. And then he repeats himself. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. In this intensely personal kind of closing appeal, you really get a sense of Paul echoing Moses' challenge to God's children so long ago, saying, this is no empty word for you, Philippians, but your very life, and by this word you shall live. The command to rejoice, in Paul's account, is not separate from the sacrificial offering of our faith. They're actually interconnected. Just as Jesus is declared and crowned king here on earth, but as we sometimes put in the liturgy, right, his crown is a crown of thorns. His cross is, the throne, is his throne. 
We are called to live in that kingdom now, and our Lord has shown us the way, and it's a path of sacrifice and suffering. So let me just close with this challenge. Think back for a moment to our opening illustration of time travel. We might enjoy speculating about that and thinking about what would change if we could take our our knowledge back into the past or forward into the future. But Paul's reminding us we have been told what's going to be. We've been told what God is doing. And those repeated references he gives us here from the Old Testament tell us this is not a new story. It's not like I've made up a new plot for you people, right? Paul's saying, I'm just latching on to a story that's been going on since well before me. God's work has been remarkably consistent down through time. And what these Old Testament passages and Paul's kind of bringing them together remind us is that God's work has not changed in its essential nature in the past, and Paul's saying it won't in the future. Salvation has always been God's work. Think about what Jesus did. Think about the Exodus. It's always been God's work. And he's always invited us and indeed required us to participate in that work by obeying him. So the question we're left with that Paul's putting before us today, I think, is how will we respond to this call? How do we respond to the call to follow the crucified one in the way he leads? And this is one of those moments where, like, we're in church. We're here to worship, right? We're here to come partake at the table. We all know the right answer, right? Of course, yes, we should follow Jesus, right? I mean, we're Christians. That's what we do. But I think where this gets hard is in the day-to-day living of that. Not just in theory, not just in the moment we've come together to worship and to praise, but when we have to make those hard decisions, is Jesus truly Lord or is somebody else? It's not Caesar for us, but who else might be Lord in your life? So the question we are left with is, will we live out this word of life even when it's hard? Will I? Will you? So Church of the Redeemer, let us together work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Let us embody this word of life, knowing that it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.